Good evening. How are you doing tonight? Good. It's good to be here. Maybe better to be sitting there than standing up here, but never mind. As David said, tonight we are coming to the end of the, our studies in Second Timothy. Um, I think there's one more sermon to go after me, but we're, we're getting there. The title for my sermon tonight is Paul Deserted, Delivered, and Declaring God's Praise. Deserted, Delivered, and Declaring God's Praise. Now, we've been spending a bit of time working through the book of 2 Timothy, and we're now reaching the end. So the passage we're looking at tonight is dealing with some of Paul's personal remarks to Timothy. It's a wee bit different from what we've looked at before because it is on that personal level. Paul is looking to pass on his his personal remarks to Timothy rather than a more sort of wisdom-based tact that he's been dealing with in the rest of the book. Before reading the text, um, I do feel it's important just to remember some of the setting, just to place it into some context. Paul has been arrested again, and he's writing from a prison cell in Rome. He believes this time is almost up, and he's going to die soon. He's writing it as Timothy's mentor, requesting that Timothy comes to visit him, and comes to visit him soon. Paul is passing on vital encouragement and instruction to Timothy, so that Timothy will be able to carry on the work that Paul has started, spreading the gospel. Now it's been already said by others that one way of looking at this letter is Paul's last will and testament. If we follow on with that motif, it's the idea of passing on a legacy to Timothy that he will continue with, the spreading of the gospel. So Paul has earlier in this letter, amongst many other pieces of advice, encouraged Timothy to fan into flame his gifting. He did that in chapter 1. He's reminded Timothy not to be ashamed of either testifying about Jesus or testifying about Paul. He's warned him of false teachers in chapter 3, and he's told him to expect persecution. He's told him to keep on going and to continue in what he has learned, and he's given him a charge to preach the word. So that's the background to this portion of scripture that we're coming to tonight. Paul is now writing the concluding remarks of his letter, and as he did in the opening sections of the chapter or of the book, sorry, he's stating that he wants Timothy to come and he wants him to come quickly. There's an urgency about what Paul is writing here. So if we can turn to the passage, it's 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9 to the end. And for those following the Pew Bibles, it's on page 1197. Do your best to come to me quickly. For Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, because he is helpful to me in my ministry. I sent Tychicus to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, and my scrolls, especially the parchments. Alexander the metalworker did me a great deal of harm, and the Lord will repay him for what he has done. You too should be on your guard against him, because he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense... No one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength, so that through through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack, and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory for ever and ever. Amen. Greet Priscilla and Aquila and the household of Anisiphorus. 
Erastus stayed in Corinth and I left Trophimus sick in Miletus. Do your best to get here before winter. Eubulus greets you and so do Pudens, Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Now Paul was undoubtedly one of the most important men in the development and the spread of the faith that we know as Christianity. He was an author of a large portion of the Bible that we now know as the New Testament. And we read his writings and are maybe amazed that he could have such an understanding of God and that he could have such faith in God despite the circumstances that he lived in. His faith drove him to travel many miles and meet many people in an attempt to spread the gospel. He faced physical, mental and spiritual persecution along the way and yet kept on going. I think that sometimes the image we have of Paul is that of the cyborg in the film Terminator. In the film, this Terminator, Arnold Schwarzenegger, is a robot that has been pre-programmed with a mission to carry out. He will perform it come what may. It is relentless, never resting, doesn't need to eat or sleep, simply keeps on coming, closing in on its target. It is cold, unfeeling and very unhuman. It's very hard to relate to. Are we sometimes guilty of thinking of Paul in that light? Very hard to relate to. Too up there. Too beyond us. But what this passage helps us to do is to see that Paul was not in fact a self-sufficient robot without needs. Rather he was a human being. A human being called by and gifted by God to do a job. And I think this view gives us an opportunity to draw alongside and relate to this man. He was a human called by and gifted by God to do a job. However, Paul was a man who was prepared to fan into flame his gifting. He was one that was prepared to be persecuted if that's what it took. One who at this point believed he had finished his race. So what does Paul, writing from captivity, approaching death, ask of his friend? Well, we can see that he has three simple requests. One, he's lonely so wants some company. Come quickly, he says that in verse 9. Two, he's cold, so he wants something to keep him warm. Bring my cloak, in verse 13. And three, he's bored, so he wants something to read. Something to stimulate his mind. Bring my scrolls, especially the parchments. Now, does the fact that Paul wanted something and acknowledged it to another make him less spiritual? Does he go down in our estimations? No, it's a a natural human response. When we have a need, we should be able to make this known to others, and we should also hope and expect that they will help. So what of Paul's friends? Paul deserted. Disappointment is a part of human experience. Living in relationship with others will always bring its highs and its lows. And I think that we can see that one of the emotions that Paul must have had and must have struggled with is a disappointment with the people that he was working with. Paul is in prison and feels isolated and alone. We can tell from the passage that we know that Luke is with him, but there don't appear to be many others. Paul has already made reference to this position earlier in his letter, where at 2 Timothy chapter 1 he writes, You know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me. Everyone in the province of Asia has deserted him. But this desertion is not simply by a crowd of followers. It's far more personal than that. Paul wants to highlight to Timothy that Demas has deserted him. Demas, who we read of elsewhere as being one of Paul's fellow workers, 
We can see that, for example, in Philemon, verse 24. Demas has gone. He's gone to Thessalonica. Demas was not simply a member of the following crowd. Demas is somebody who would have spent time with Paul, ate with him, learnt from him, and worked alongside him. He's obviously worked enough with Paul to merit mentions in two of his other letters. So is this the type of person we should expect to desert him? To desert Paul in his hour of need? Why do you think Demas left? Well, we don't know the exact circumstances surrounding the split between the two men. But what we do know is what Paul records for us in verse 10. Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me. Because he loved the world. Now, what does Paul mean by that? It would appear that what Paul is saying is that Demas has become focused on the present world. He become focused on the present world that surrounds, and in so doing, he had taken his eyes off an eternal reality. Demas has chosen this world rather than the world to come. Demas forgot, or perhaps chose not to remember, that there is more to this life than the world that we see around us. There is an eternal element which he forgot. And once the eternal is removed, the world and its trappings look more attractive. If the light of eternity shines on them, they are shown up for what they are. So the position we can see adopted by Demas contrasts with Paul's. If we look at what Paul writes earlier in the chapter, we can see that Paul's focus is not on the world, not on the present world, but rather on a hope that was his as a believer. If you look at verse 8 of chapter 4, Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to to all who have longed for his appearing. The crown that the Lord is going to award. Paul was focused on Jesus. He longed for his appearing. Paul had an eye on eternity in all that he did. We can see this viewpoint of Paul in some of his other writings. In Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, we get a further, into, a further insight into his thinking. Philippians chapter 1, he writes, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Paul's viewpoint from this section is actually that he prefers death to life. That's how much he longs to be with Jesus. We can also see Paul's viewpoint on the world when he wrote to the church in Colossae. In Colossians chapter 2 he writes, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. Paul believed that the world's view was contrary to that of Jesus. He was also aware of how invasive the world could be and felt the need to warn the church about it. Now, Demas was apparently swayed by the deceptive philosophy and principles of the world and as a result has chosen to desert Paul. So what are some of the lessons we can learn from these events? Well, firstly, seeking to serve God does not exempt us from the lure of the world. Demas, as we have seen, played an active part in Paul's team and yet he is now deserted. We should therefore assess the decisions that we make 
and ensure that they are made with the mindset we should have as believers, taking into account the eternal rather than looking only to the present. Secondly, proximity to and involvement with a person or a group of people is not enough. Demas has spent time with Paul, and yet this did not prove sufficient to protect him from the world. Despite his relationship with Paul, and indeed the role he played in ministry, Demas has strayed. He's strayed from his faith and has been taken captive by what would appear to be a more alluring path. This serves as a lesson to us not to be too confident in our own situations. Do we feel secure because we are serving God or because we've built up a network of Christian friends? Now, it's unlikely that Demas fell in love with the world overnight, making a snap decision to completely change his life direction, ministry one day, leaving to go to Thessalonica the next. Rather, it is more likely to have been the result of a slow but steady snowballing. And if we analyse our lives, can we see this happening to us? Do we need to do something about it now? And finally, perhaps the threat of persecution is enough to make us choose another route, but a route that takes us away from Jesus. Settling for the quiet life is a very tempting option. In all of these scenarios, what we can see is that by ignoring the eternal dimension, it becomes easier to take our eyes off Jesus believing that the world can offer us more or at least offering us what we think we need. I think it's important that we're aware that the philosophy of this world is all pervasive. It seeps even under the church door and into the homes of Christians. We are called to remember the eternal, to stand strong, not to desert our faith, but rather to keep on running. The danger that we face as the church in the 21st century is the compartmentalization of our lives, thinking of God only in these times on Sunday. How tuned into God are we Monday to Saturday? Are we looking for his touch and activity in our lives? Are we looking to serve him with the gifts and abilities he's given us? Or are we adopting a self-serving attitude, one which gives God only the leftovers of our time, energy or resources? Now, Demas deserts, and perhaps we can think, who can blame him? Paul is setting a pretty high standard by saying that he prefers to die than to live. Paul, if he was around today, would certainly not be the most congenial of guys to spend time with. And perhaps Mark thought this too. I say this because the Mark mentioned in verse 11 of the passage that we read is one and the same that, as one that left Paul in one of his earlier journeys. We can see, however, that Mark has been given a second chance by Paul. So if we just, just to highlight that to you, um, in verse 11, only Luke is with me, get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. Now originally Mark, who was known by the name John, was a deserter. And we can see part of his story recorded for us in Acts. And if we just briefly turn to Acts, it's Acts chapter 13. And in the Pew Bibles that's 1107. Acts chapter 13 and verse 13, there's a very small mention. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them. John is one and the same as the guy Mark. That's all it says, so maybe it doesn't become immediately obvious that Mark is a deserter. But we read more in Acts chapter 15, verse 38. 
And, and talking about Mark, Paul says he did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in their work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas taking Mark and sailing for Cyprus, Paul choosing Silas. So as we can see, Mark left the work of Paul and Barnabas uh, and resulted in a refusal for Paul to work with him later on, even causing a, a schism between Paul and Barnabas. And yet as we read in Timothy, Mark is restored. Mark is restored into relationship with Paul. He's asked for by name and declared to be useful to. Now this speaks of a restoration beyond formal pleasantries, beyond simply putting the past behind. Paul at the end of his life is now specifically asking for Mark to come to him and is endorsing him as a good co-worker. Doesn't this mirror how God deals with us? Despite our failings and times when we desert him, he is the God of the second chance. One who will restore the relationship. One who will seek to continue using us, using our gifts and abilities. And that is the hope that is ours too, if we feel we have strayed or deserted our faith. Restoration is possible. We can be used. So Paul has been deserted. Paul has been delivered. Paul is hauled before a Roman court to stand trial. It's commonplace to have a preliminary hearing before the trial proper. And it would seem that this is what Paul means when he refers to his first defence in verse 16. And this would obviously be a time of great stress on the apostle. And with no one coming to his aid or assistance, this must have compounded his disappointment. All of his loyal colleagues are not there to support him, whether through desertion or other legitimate reasons. Yet Paul does not take the opportunity to let off steam in his letter to Timothy. Rather, events are recorded not to moan or whinge about how awful his life has been, but rather Paul wants to use these events to express his gratitude at God's deliverance. Now remember, this is a deliverance which still sees Paul imprisoned. He is still firmly of the belief that he will soon die. Is that how we would view deliverance? We just look again at the passage, verses 16 to 18. In my first offence, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack, and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. You'll see that Paul makes statements about his circumstances, but immediately follows these up, emphasizing the role of God. So no one came to my support. The Lord stood at my side. Everyone deserted me, and the Lord gave me strength. Paul again demonstrates that he has an eye not on the present world, but on the eternal. He is looking at this present world through an eternal lens, and it's this viewpoint that allows him to feel God's presence and enabling strength even in these dark circumstances. However, Paul records that there was a point to God's presence and strength, a point beyond simply helping Paul through a tough set of circumstances. This isn't so much a so what as a so that. So that through me the message may be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles may be able to hear it. Paul, notwithstanding the years of ministry, the opposition he's faced, the imminent danger that surrounds, keeps on going. Even in this setting, he uses his position to spread the gospel. He could easily have put his feet up and said, I've done my job, I'll leave further preaching to Timothy and to anybody else that's following on. But that just wasn't in Paul's makeup. 
He continued to take the opportunities that he was presented with right up to the end. So Paul's delivered from the lion's mouth. Paul goes on to state that he's been delivered from the lion's mouth and there's, there's a few discussions as to what that exactly means. The consensus of the commentary seems to be saying this is a metaphorical language about his death. As a Roman citizen, Paul didn't literally face uh, execution by being thrown to the lions. And in fact, church history later records that he'd be beheaded. So you can take your choice there, which you prefer. Paul delivered or rescued from every evil attack. Paul continues with his eternal view coming to the fore again in verse 18. The Lord will rescue me. Paul had a future hope grounded in Jesus. He was able to say that he will be rescued from every evil attack and he will be brought into the heavenly kingdom. Now, as I mentioned, Paul was, we we see recorded in church history, beheaded. So is this a rescue or deliverance from every evil attack? In Paul's mind, he would be rescued from all he needed to be in order to finish his race. And this was enough for him. That promise remains true for us. But to grasp it, we need to be able to look to the eternal. Otherwise, like Demas, we run the risk of desertion. So God delivered Paul. He will also deliver us. Do we believe that? Do we live in the light of that belief? Are we living in the light of eternity? By that I mean, do we make our decisions and consider our actions in the light of the beliefs that we claim to hold on to? Or do we simply apply the world's logic to our problems? The viewpoint that we have will dramatically change the way that we approach problems and difficulties in our lives. So what then did all this mean for Paul and in turn us? Paul declares God's praise. So the circumstances and reflections that Paul has had from his prison cell drive him to declare God's praise in verse 18. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now to the onlooker, it may seem that there's not much to give praise for. Paul is imprisoned. The trial process is already underway. The ball is rolling and the clock is ticking on his life. He is lonely, cold and bored and still declares, to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I think this is an awesome challenge for us today. How often are we found not to be offering God praise for the things that go on in our lives? How quick do we take the credit for ourselves or believe that we are worth it? Aren't these some of the worldly viewpoints that Paul has warned us of? Paul was able to look above and beyond this world and give credit to Yahweh, his creator God, even in miserable circumstances. He was able to find opportunity to use his gifts even in dark moments. And this can be a challenge and a spur to us to follow his example. But what made it possible was Paul's viewpoint. He was not captivated by the world's philosophy. He was able to see through it. And he was aware and could see another dimension, the eternal realm. And this enabled him to see his life in true perspective. Declaring God's praise is something that comes naturally to Paul. He's taken the opportunity many other times in other parts of his writings to do so. For example, in in his first letter to Timothy, chapter 1, he declares, Now to the King Eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen. And in 1 Timothy again, chapter 6, God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, 
who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honour and might forever. Amen. Does praise and adoration of our God form part of our everyday life? Does it flow from us? Are we tuned into the eternal frequency? Recently saw a billboard for a new radio station. Tune up to U105 FM. I think we should be tuning up well beyond 105 FM and tuning up to the eternal realm. That is where we have our get our viewpoint, get our perspective from. Paul deserted, delivered, and declaring God's praise.